From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Hamish McDonald. My name is Jesse Baring. I am a science writer, a psychologist, and currently I'm an associate professor at the Centre for Science Communication at the University of Otago in New Zealand. When I was growing up, I, I actually didn't have any, you know, solid ideas, I guess, about what I wanted to do. But I do recall a, um, a homework assignment in about first grade where they asked us that question, and I remember vividly writing down I wanted to be a race car driver, and I couldn't be further from that <laughs> at the moment. From a very early age, Jesse Baring has been asking questions of himself. Growing up amid AIDS hysteria in Reagan's America, Baring knew that he was attracted to other boys, but was terrified into a guilty silence. At high school, he took up wrestling in a bid to fight back sexual desire, but found only deeper consciousness of his homosexuality. As an adult, he has continued asking questions with frankness and with humour, handling sensitive topics of sex, evolution, religion and morality. His books, Perv and Why Is the Penis Shaped Like That, have elevated him to cult hero status. If I had to put a label on myself, says the 41-year-old, it would be a sexual libertarian. Jesse Berry, what does that mean, a sexual libertarian? It means, uh, you know, really avoiding the uh, common sense definition of what is, you know, proper sex, uh, you know, avoiding, uh, avoiding the terms normal and natural and really focusing on the question of harm and doing our best to define harm on a case-by-case basis. It's a tricky issue in itself, but we're, we're spending far too much time in this rhetoric of what's normal and what's natural. And I grew up my entire life trying to fit the mold of, you know, the majority of society. When in, in reality, you know, those terms like that, what's, what's normal, uh, that, that's just a statistical concept. What was it like growing up for you? Where was it? Uh, and was it a particularly puritanical view of those sorts of questions? I was a, a very sensitive child. And I think I um, just sensed the societal disapproval of uh, gay men in particular. And I began to identify, I think, with gay men, if not sort of explicitly, I I'd sort of, it, it was a very sort of, um, it was a very un unconscious, subconscious uh, recognition of the similarity that I had to people like Rock Hudson. Something about him reminded me of me. And I remember stories about him, you know, dying during the AIDS epidemic and um, all the talk that was circulating about gay men and, and homosexuality and the protests, and, you know, people talking about this being God's punishment. And I internalized my homosexuality for a very long time because of that, that type of atmosphere. And, you know, I didn't grow up in a particularly religious family. And I, and I would probably say that my parents were more progressively minded and, and uh, liberal than, you know, your average American living in – at that time, I was living in Virginia, but then we moved to central Ohio, the Midwest. Um, and my parents were at college educated and pretty bright, but we just never had open conversations about gay men and women. So I didn't have any uh, idea what they thought about it. But I definitely knew what other kids at school thought about it and, you know, what society at large thought about it. And I, and I went – I remember, you know, swearing to myself that I would go to my grave with this secret. Your family moved to Ohio in Midwest. Where were you? What was your home like? Paint us a picture. It was a very 
typical upper middle class suburban neighborhood uh, about a you know half an hour away maybe from the capital of the state Columbus it was Columbus Ohio I lived in a town called Westerville Ohio my father uh, was a glue salesman but he was a really bright guy you know he was he was uh, an English major my mother was a, a secretary she worked at a health insurance company very status quo family. My, my brother, I'm the youngest of three. My brother uh, always wanted to be an attorney. He is an attorney now. He's a tax attorney, um, which to me is the most boring profession imaginable. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he won't be listening. <laughs> no, he, he thinks it's incredibly fascinating and, and I'm sure it is, you know, for, for people um, like-minded, you know, lots of sort of creative loopholes in the process. My, my sister became an insurance agent and I – you know, I was I was a really poor student. I, mean, I I I think I was interested in in school. Um, always the teacher's pet in elementary school, but around the time I got into middle school and, and high school, uh, I just lost interest. I was preoccupied with this social scene. Uh, not so much that you know I wasn't necessarily popular. I was sort of just very acutely aware of other people's relationships and and always sort of keeping tabs on uh, on the gossip scene and i think that just simply uh, is a reflection of my interest in psychology which is ultimately what i became you said you were a very nervous child and you told me beforehand that you get nervous talking about this stuff is there a common link yeah i'm sure i mean i i, I am a nervous person now do you know where that comes from <laughs> Uh, it's, I've experienced that I think as long as I can remember. It's I've, I, I have been diagnosed with social anxiety. I've experienced long bouts of depression. I'm medicated now. You know, I'm reasonably functional. I don't think most people would necessarily. I, I think I come across as probably as more neurotic than than anything else. But it has been part of the engine I think which has motivated me as well. <laughs> Because I, I, I am so hyper aware of the impression that I'm making and how I'm coming across and what I'm saying and the words that I'm using. And has it been like that since childhood? Do you remember when you reflect on growing up in Ohio, having that sort of hyper awareness? Yeah, I, I, I think it probably flared up definitely around, you know, in my adolescence, I, I, I think, you know, when I was suppressing my my homosexuality even that word homosexuality is just a strange, like a uh, very technical scientific term. It, it sounds <laughs> odd coming out, doesn't it? it, it when, does, you, when you when you say I'm a that gay, way. basically. And um, <laughs> thanks for clarifying, yes. Jesse. And I and I I, I I do remember just always trying to re- remember who I was giving certain types of information about the relationships. I you know who, you know I, I was attracted to this girl or that girl. Um, the uh, appearance that I was presenting to others. I, I dated girls. It, it was not a comfortable experience to have to kiss girls that I wasn't attracted to, that that type of thing. But it was all about impression management. Do you remember those instances? Oh, yeah. They, they were painful. <laughs> um, I, Tell I, me about one of them. Um, I, I was uh, dating the vice principal's daughter, and uh, she you know, was a really – sensitive girl as well and i think she, i think she really fancied me and um and, and i feel terrible now about misleading her at that time but you know i was 16 17 and um cultivating this image of actually being attracted to her and you know it was fine in public you know i could always sort of flirt with her and um try to deceive others but but then when we found ourselves alone together like in her basement i remember a very vivid example of that and um her trying to make out with me and me sort of pulling away and her not understanding and 
um, you know, this was this was the early '90s, late '80s. It, it just wasn't a conversation that that people had at that time. You know, for her to ask me if I was gay or even to sort of suspect it. Was there a level at which this was all quite easy for you? Were you quite popular with the girls? You mm-hmm. said it was easy to flirt. I always liked flirting, and I still like flirting. I love women, actually, and you know there have, and, and I've often said um, that I that I I think I've had most of my sort of most meaningful romantic relationships with women, just because uh, they're very intimate, and I can understand them. I think at a level that most uh, many straight men can't, because um, it, I'm not uh, clouded by any sort of sexual desi- desire for them. That sounds bad, actually, too, when I say it out loud. <laughs> But um, I do think that uh, it, it did become quite easy for me, and I don't think it ever really sort of occurred to people that I – that was part of the difficulty, I think. Never, nobody ever sort of asked me outright, are you gay? They, they waited for me to come out of the closet. Did you want them to ask that? I, I think I told myself at some point, maybe like in my late teens or you know, early 20s, that if anybody asks me, I will be honest with them. And I will tell them. nobody ever asked me. So I hid myself in my studies. You know, in, at the, at, when, I, when I went to university, I, I became a really studious student and buried myself in my work. And um, people just sort of suspected that I wasn't interested in dating because I was, you know, such a scholar, <laughs> and you know, sort of this eccentric scholar or something like that. And, and uh, you had taken up wrestling as well. You, you oh, that was, took yeah. constructed high school, quite did, a world yeah. around you. Yeah, that didn't last very long. Yeah, there were problems with the singlet. I think when, <laughs> when I when I was attempting to be a wrestler, um, and that wasn't very good for my well, impression management. Management. Skills. What was wrong with the singlet? Well, they they belie, I think. Uh, certain patterns of attraction that, you know, are, are, are problematic at that age. <laughs> <laughs> Do you recall the age at which you understood you had this attraction to, to boys? You know, there was a time, I think, where I, I looked in the mirror and I said, I'm, oh, my God, I'm gay. Like, it was, it was kind of shocking to me because I, there was a period of time where I tried to sort of distance myself from people like that. Tell and me about that time. When was it? Where were you? Uh, this, you know, this was... I mean, I, I at the time remember late '80s, early '90s in Ohio. These really derogatory um, terms. You know, you're a fag. You're gay. I mean, I was using these these terms as well. I think as a kid, they they were being processed. I think in my head at a very deep level. So I, I tried to do everything I could to hide the fact that I was one of those people. But I do remember quite vividly looking in the mirror and 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 realizing. Holy shit! I'm actually. I think I'm actually gay, and uh, and that's when I swore to myself I would go to my grave um, without ever telling. But in fact, I remember my plan at some point in high school was to find a really nice lesbian who was also deeply closeted, and you know, uh, we'll have this sort of mutual understanding that this is not something that we'll share and we'll sort of deceive the entire world. And even at university, did you move beyond that sort of thinking? Uh, I, I was a late bloomer. I. I came out of the closet slowly, gradually to different people that I trusted. Uh, I, I came out to my mother first, actually, when I was um, 21, finishing my, my, my bachelor's degree, about to move to Louisiana. I had relocated from Ohio to Florida, where I went to university, and my mother was living in Florida as well. And I told my mother uh, when I was about 21, but it was that was complicated too because I told her because she was dying, and I I knew she was dying, and I I sort of thought to myself, you know, I, I'm I'm going to always regret not having told her if uh, if she, if she passes away before sharing this, you know. So how did you do it? It was a really dramatic scene. You know, we were sort of seated at the kitchen table, and um, I said, I have something to tell you. And she's and I and I just simply said, you know, I'm gay. And she said, Ah, oh, you're joking, right? Like she, 
she thought, I mean, because that's, I, I, I am quite sarcastic, I guess, uh, usually, and, and people don't know when I'm joking because I, I say things without smiling and I just have a really sort of flat affect oftentimes when I'm uh, joking with people. So she knew that was just simply my personality. She thought that was just, this was just sort of another occurrence. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not. I, I really am gay. And <laughs> it took her a while. You know, she wasn't homophobic. She just didn't have like a lot of experience with the gay community. She was a really cloistered suburban housewife, really, that had grown up in, you know, she had grown up in, in New Jersey. She was Jewish, you know, just, it was just not a familiar, it, it was just not a familiar type of uh, issue for her. And in fact, she, I remember her telling me um, about a year later that uh, for the for the next week, she was plagued with nightmares that I was dressed in drag um, <laughs> after I told her that I was gay. So in her mind, you know, she was she didn't she basically sort of conflated homosexuality with uh, drag queens or transvestites or transgender, whatever. She you know, she didn't didn't really understand the difference between them. By the, by the time she died a couple of years later, she had she had uh, terminal ovarian cancer, and it was a horrible, you know, long period of, of suffering. And at the end of it, she had totally come around. She she was she was actually quite a vocal advocate of, of gay rights. I remember her correcting her own mother, my grandmother, when her when her mother said something negative about gays, um, which was nice to see. A lot of your work, a lot of the stuff that you have come to write about, that you've come to study, is the sort of stuff that I imagine a mother might say, oh, that's that's a bit strange. <laughs> that's a bit different. We don't talk about that. She's not around anymore, I guess. So that's, you know, maybe it's a little bit easier because of that, actually. Really? Um, maybe, yeah, actually. I, 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 it, it's funny. My, my family has... Um, I wouldn't say they've distanced themselves from my work, but they, they're not particularly interested in what I write about. They're not, you know, they're not sort of academically oriented. They're not really sort of interested in these types of questions. They're, they're not incurious. They're just curious about completely different things than I am. So they don't, you don't run home with a copy of your latest book, Perv, and Oh, say, I give it to them, to... <laughs> but they don't read it. I mean, I, um, and I, I'm sure that my, my brother and sister hide it in the house from their children. And, you know, at some point I'm going to have to tell my nieces and nephews exactly what I, what I do. How did you – at what point did you come to realize that these sorts of topics, these kinds of questions are things that you – have both a particular interest in but also a skill for understanding interpreting and writing about it was a it was a evolution i guess in my own in my professional career i, I like i said I, you know one of the things about uh, my period of life as a student at the university was that i completely buried myself in my work and a lot of that was because i was hide, trying to hide my identity and not sort of be forced out of the closet prematurely but as a consequence of that i went through my education very rapidly so i had my phd by the time i was 26 and all of a sudden i was a professor at the university of arkansas in the psychology Specializing department in- i got my phd in developmental psychology and uh, I was uh, especially interested in religion and uh, evolution and psychology, basically. How did you come to a point where you realized that you're not only someone that has an interest in these sorts of topics, but that you also have a skill for interpreting them, analyzing them, and writing about them in a way that people can find accessible? Well, I was just sort of a run-of-the-mill standard academic um, psychologist uh, doing research in my laboratory, publishing in peer-reviewed 
articles, but I always wanted to write. You know, I, I always had a sort of an urge to communicate in a in a much more creative, unconstrained fashion, where uh, you know every sentence that I write isn't necessarily tethered to a citation, um, and I could actually have a personality and an opinion. That was always something that I had to suppress, I think, as an academic and that type, you know, that sort of really scholarly, rigid journal article publication. So when I when I uh, began to sort of experiment, I guess, with popular science writing, it was liberating. You know, it sort of I found my voice. I was finally able to sort of speak in a way that matched what I thought. Were these subjects things that you were having conversations about with friends in particular groups that you then found a voice to write about? Everything that I've that I've written about, and I and I began my the sort of popular science writing in Scientific American. They gave me a column. The first article that I wrote was about the afterlife, which was the topic of my research as a psychologist. I was investigating how children think about life after death, what happens to the mind after death. And I'd been publishing, like I said, in these you know really rigid academic journals, but I thought it was quite fascinating, and I wanted to write in a way that other people sort of would appreciate. The significance of these, what I what I think are illusions about what happens to the mind after death. So I wrote this piece for Scientific American. They gave me a column and basically just kind of free reign over the topics that I I chose. Honestly, they they were just sort of topics that had always fascinated me. Um, just kind of arose organically. Uh, lots of it had to do with sex, just because I think of my history <laughs> and religion, morality. You know, conversations that I'd had with friends and colleagues and. Then just dug into the literature and and you know sort of found out what the science says and tried to articulate very clearly how you know society's views about these types of weighty issues don't necessarily match reality. Was it answering your own curiosity? Oh, absolutely. I I, I think every every piece that I've written has always been just the next stepping stone from the last thing that I've written. So, for, just to give you an example, I wrote a I wrote an article about asexuality which is a a relatively newly at least confirmed sexual orientation in which people claim that they have normal levels of sexual desire but they simply aren't attracted to males or females or they don't have any fetishes they're not attracted to objects or animals or people of any age they just simply are asexual so it's not a, it's not a problem with their libido necessarily they just simply don't have a, a target of attraction so I, you know, I wrote an, a piece about that, trying to be as objective as possible, looking at um, at, at the scientific research in that field. And then um, I got an email that uh, shortly after that from a reader who said that I really like how you handled, you know, the asexuality question. I'd like for you to talk about my particular paraphilia, which is zoophilia. So this person was sexually attracted to animals, <laughs> you know, not just sort of in the sense of bestiality where you couldn't find a woman and he's, you know, having sex with a goat. But he genuinely would rather have sex with an animal over a human being. That's a thing. It is a thing. It's zoophilia, yeah. and you know, there's there's scientific research on that. So slowly, I think I, I developed a reputation for writing about these sort of taboo, stigmatized, uh, controversial areas, uh, specifically in, in sexuality. And what many people would kind of call depravities. Oh, they still society. do, of course, yeah, and uh, for, for many of them. But uh, as So a, you're, you're challenging actually something about society as well at the same time. I guess I'm, I'm trying to force people to think deeply about why they feel so passionately in a moral sense about uh, many deviant sexual orientations. And again, when I use words like deviant or abnormal, for me, these are not moralistic terms. They're just statistical terms in terms of straying from 
the majority of the population. It's so a deviation from deviation the from the norm. Curve, yeah. yeah, some you know we have we have loaded that word up with all sorts of moral implications, but um, it's not inherently good or bad or moral or immoral or evil. Or is there? Do you have a hypothesis about those people that take very strong? views, moral views on people that do things differently to them. You know, there's always that question about the people that rail against homosexuality. Yeah. You know, is this because of something within them? Well, there, I mean, there is there is actually an established literature looking on homophobic reactions to these sort of intense homophobic reactions and the personality differences of, of individuals who feel so easily disgusted and revolted by by gay people. And oftentimes, if you dig deeply enough, you'll find that they are aroused by the same sex. I don't think that's true necessarily in every case, but, you know, so if you've got a, a really virulent male homophobe, at least, who's, uh, you know, who says that, you know, gay marriage is disgusting and these fags are gross and, you know, they should, you know, they should be euthanized because they're sick and abnormal. The ones that feel so strongly about those subjects. You put them in a laboratory, you hook them up to a, a penile plethysmography, which is the sort of uh, gauge of their erection, and you show them gay porn, they get aroused <laughs> more so than um, somebody that doesn't feel particularly strongly about gay marriage or homosexuality at all. So it's it's a... You've done that? I haven't personally done that, but that there are studies in the sexology field that have demonstrated that effect quite clearly, actually. Um, so I'm not sure that applies that necessarily across all the different types of paraphilias and fetishes and why people feel that those are wrong. But with homosexuality, at least, it is a demonstrated fact. You've said that you are someone that has a degree of hypersensitivity about what people are thinking about what you say and do, and yet you've found your way into this career or professional pursuit of writing about stuff that people do find challenging and surely must draw conclusions about you because of the oh, fact yeah. that you're writing about it. How does that all fit together? I, it's something that I've struggled with, definitely, because um, I think for a long time, at least early in my, my career, I, I shied away from a lot of the topics that I found uh, the most fascinating because I, I thought that they would, you know, people would see me as being an advocate of things that I, I don't necessarily advocate. Or, and it must be said that you're not into, as it were, all the things that you write about. No, in fact, I'm quite prudish, actually, sexually, which is maybe part of the irony here. Um, oh, really? What, tell me something you're prudish about. I'm a... I mean, I'm gay, but for me, sex is not that important of a factor in my life. It's kind of a nuisance, actually. I find it fascinating, but it's not something that I I need desperately. <laughs> it's more of an intellectual sort of exercise for me. Many people will find that surprising. People that Probably, know you and yeah. read your work and listen to what you talk about will have assumed hey, this is a guy that's into lots of different stuff. Maybe, but but also I have a very if you intellectualize it too much, I guess it sort of loses its seductiveness after a while. And I, I you know, because I, I, I wasn't with uh, another man until quite, you know, I was in my late 20s, I think, when I met my partner, who I'm still with now, 10 years later, I haven't had a lot of sexual experience sort of outside of our relationship. It, it's just not, it's something that I'm accustomed to, you know, basically being without. <laughs> not that I'm without now, but, you know, it has been 10 years. How do you find the reaction that you get from people? Because presumably, as a result of what you write about and talk about, people see you as some kind of beacon. 
you do have this kind of cult status amongst certain communities because of what you've written about. I surprisingly, I think I get a lot less hate mail than than people probably expect. Actually, I mean, I, I get my share. I would say that my my largest fan base is probably in prison. Tell me about that. Well, uh, I mean, that's an exaggeration, but I, I certainly do get letters from people who think that uh, they've been misjudged and misunderstood, and the the criminal sexual acts that they've engaged in have not constituted violence or harm either emotionally or physically against another person, but yet they find themselves the, the victims or the, the products of an unjust legal system. Can you give me an example? Yes, I can tell you about a guy that wrote me recently. So I, I'm, I'm currently writing a book on suicide, um, and there's an overlap, I think, with uh, some of the work that I've done on sex in terms of uh, people feeling ostracized and so on. There's definitely you know, a, a much higher rate of suicide among people who have unwanted sexual desires. And this man um, was a convicted sex offender. I'd never found out the details about it, what exactly he did, and frankly, I didn't ask. But he was in uh, prison for a very long time and finally found himself in the in the outside world and uh, was living in a... The only job he basically could find was as a farmhand on this, this old farmer's estate. He was working in a barn, you know, doing chores. Uh, and he seemed to sort of have a, a decent sort of relationship and understanding with this person. They were sort of isolated from the rest of the world. You know, just the two of them kind of on this this functional farm. And then the, then the old farmer died and the family wanted to sell the farm. So he was going to be thrust out into this world uh, where people didn't understand him and he was deathly afraid of people judging him and you know, not, uh, not being able to integrate into society because he, he, he knew <laughs> simply that it was uh, not going to turn out well. So he was suicidal. He was telling me he, he saw no way out. And, you know, I had to agree there's a certain rationality there because I think society is so reluctant and unwilling to embrace those who have committed sexual serious sexual transgressions. So I, all I could do is sort of recommend him seek counseling and that there will be people who understand. But in the end, it's a really complicated case. You get into this sort of murky territory, don't you, once you explore sexuality and people's desires because there's all sorts of laws. People want to share things with me, um, things I don't necessarily want to hear. I, I'm approaching these types of things from a strictly academic, scientific perspective. I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm not here to give people counseling or ethical advice. I'm simply um, trying to communicate scientific information that helps dispel ignorance and rumors and fear. How difficult is it to know when you're straying into territory that actually society is going to push back against very hard because it starts to cross into areas that the sort of broad consensus in society says, no, that bit, that kind of behavior is not okay? Well, I guess I don't have those limits and maybe that's been part of my problem. <laughs> I, I do go into territory that is incredibly uncomfortable for many people. Basically, I, I'm sort of questioning the logic of the inclusion of these particular letters in the alphabet, LGBT, and the exclusion of others. And uh, – who is sort of determining um, what gets in and what's kept out? But we, I mean, you you talk about the letter P as well, which I think is for pervert, is it? Pedophile, Pedophile. actually, yeah. And so it's it sounds like you're starting to ask the question of whether that should be acceptable to 
It's a, it's a complicated question. I started off looking at this issue of Z because – and the reason was that was for that is because I came across a, a Twitter profile and the guy had LGBTZ. And I, you know, I'd written Perv already. I knew what Z stood for. He had a picture of a horse. Um, so I, I, and he said he was an animal lover, but sort of like age, you know, he wasn't the platonic kind of <laughs> animal lover. It is – this is, you know, this is really – Difficult for me to – I mean I, I love animals but not that way. So uh, it's hard for me to visit a lot of these topics as well. On the other hand, the onus is on us to explain why we're excluding certain sexual minorities and including others. You know, it's – as a gay person who grew up feeling marginalized and, and uh, completely rejected by society, I, I suppose I feel a certain type of sympathy for those who are in that position now. And I need, I need to qualify that by saying that uh, I'm definitely not advocating bestiality or zoophilia or pedophilia. But there are people within those those communities that are morally celibate because they themselves recognize the harm that they would do to vulnerable, innocent others and are trying to do everything they possibly can to refrain from actually acting on their desires. And you know, if you look at the uh, development of paraphilias, many of them will say, just like homosexuality this, or, or whatever uh, sexual orientation you are, this is a lifelong orientation. It's clear enough to me that, you know, this is not a decision that people have made. I mean, I, I can't imagine uh, if somebody had a gun to my head, I couldn't choose to be attracted to prepubescent children or to, uh, you know, a horse. <laughs> it's just, it just, I couldn't make a decision like that. So, so clearly, to me at least, it's fairly obvious that they're not deciding to have these, uh, these feelings. It is sim- simply who they are. And just like, you know, conversion therapy for gays and lesbians, it's just, it's, it's all the attempts, the clinical attempts to change these people to be attracted you know, in the normal sense to be attracted to reproductive-aged adults or to human beings, they, they're major flops. Um, you are who you are. Those desires um, in terms of what, you know, your brain responds to in terms of uh, different sets of uh, erotic stimuli or, or people or objects or animals in the environment, you can't control that. But you can control your behaviors or you can at least, uh, you can at least learn behavioral management tactics to keep you from acting on those desires. So my argument in that piece was simply to question the logic of excluding them and um, having them sort of burrow deeper down into society and not learn how to manage the, their uh, their sexual feelings uh, in a way that will ultimately come out and, 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 and cause greater harm. But I think we, we just need to take a, a much more critical, deeper look at our own emotional biases uh, because oftentimes um, there's far less logic in them than we might assume. So you're looking for whatever the core principle is, right? And this, and and I guess it bears reiterating that uh, I'm talking only about those who are morally celibate uh, when it comes to at least the harmful paraphilias and fetishes. So people who identify as a particular uh, sexual type or sexual orientation. Um, but aren't necessarily sexually active. Mm. So, I mean, I, I was gay before I ever had gay sex. I identified, uh, you know, with the gay community. And I would imagine most straight people saw themselves as part of the straight community before they lost their virginity. Um, so you don't have to be sexually active to be a member of a, uh, a sexual community. You've just referenced it here. A question, I guess, that is discussed and considered by by, you know, large portions of society is the permanency of sexuality? Is it something that is static throughout a lifetime? Does it evolve? 
One of the difficulties with studying uh, at least unusual patterns of sexual attraction is that you can't do controlled psychology experiments where you, you know you get a group of infants and you sort of randomly assign one to the control condition, and they get the normal sort of developmental experiences, and the other to the the deviant sex condition, and expose them to all sorts of weird stuff, and see who grows up to be a pervert. That just you know obviously. You could do it in principle, but ethically you won't do it. So all you know, the best that we have now in terms of developmental developmental models are, are animal comparisons and and adults who have these types of uh, uh, sexual desires. Their retrospective accounts, and most people will say that um, for as long as they can remember, they were attracted to what turns them on as adults. Especially men. Men seem to basically have a an immutable pattern of desire. And you know, I, I've interviewed and I've uh, I've seen many case studies of people with foot fetishes, for example. Personally, I find feet absolutely disgusting, <laughs> but lots of people don't. You know, people are really turned on by it. Some people, and maybe it's just my feet are not very attractive, so I try <laughs> to avoid them. I try to keep from making eye contact with my feet. <laughs> but um, there are there are many people that have podophilia, which is the 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 scientific term for foot fetish. Who say that? Well, they they remember, you know, when they were four or five, and um, they were in bed rubbing their mother's feet or something, and she was groaning in pleasure, and she was clearly enjoying it, and they happened to have an erection at the time, and um, or others saying that they were wrestling with their brothers or their friends, uh, um, and the feet sort of flung in their face, and now they're you know they're gay men with a foot fetish. Uh, it's surprisingly young when these things seem to lock into place. Uh, the average age range is about four to seven, which I think is shocking to many people and probably deeply worrying for parents. Because we assume that <laughs> at that asexual, age, they're you're just, not they have sexual, no sexual beings. Right. And in many ways, they're not sexual beings, but because they sort of develop a, a curiosity or some sort of just an arousal response, a physiological arousal response, it becomes sexualized once they reach adolescence and you've got the hormonal influx and these things um, come alive <laughs> And once that happens, you know, for men at least, this is uh, this is what the the sex research seems to indicate. It is what it is, and you you need to navigate through your life course uh, with that particular uh, orientation. All of these groups of people that seem to cluster around your work because of their interest in it, you must get some incredibly strange requests. Well, a couple of days ago, I got an email from a guy in India, 20 years old. Um, he, he said that he was a gerontophile. Um, he was sexually attracted only to women uh, over the age of 60. He said between the ages of about 60 and 75. And he wanted to know if there was a cure for gerontophilia. He'd, written, he'd, he'd read something that I'd written about the subject at some point. And he's going to have a hard life. I mean, to be honest, he's uh, especially living in India. You know, this is beyond the cougar sort of traditional category. But that's not to say what he is attracted. There's no reason to think that it's immoral or you know something that needs to be cured or it's a problem or anything along those lines. So I simply advised him to revisit maybe why he thinks uh, it's it's wrong. I couldn't give him advice for you know particular websites or dating sites to to visit. But he's still pressing me for some sort of uh, suggestions for you know how to find older women who would be attracted to men like that. But there's no app for that. Uh, he's on his own. I think you know with with a lot of that. I'm not a dating service, but but I think I did at least uh, relieve some of his anxieties in the sense of not feeling as 
evil uh, or disturbed maybe as he did originally when he first approached me. The next book that you're working on is about suicide. How have you come to be thinking about and writing about that topic? It is you know, notoriously difficult for us as a society to, to have conversations about. It's a it's an incredibly fascinating topic from me for for personal reasons and for intellectual reasons. It's rich material in in the sense of the questions that uh, suicide poses. Again, I'm not a clinical psychologist, and I'm I don't have a really overt anti-suicide prevention message. Um, in general, I certainly do, but it's you know there are tricky cases here. You know, thinking about euthanasia, doctor-assisted suicide, those those types of questions, which are oftentimes lumped in altogether. I suppose you know I've had these sort of fleeting uh, bouts of suicide, suicidal depression throughout my life, and sometimes they flare up. They always come back. Yeah, you know, then they go away. So, so it's always been sort of a recurring psychological experience I, I have, and my defense mechanism of choice. I think it's I, I've exhibited that with the writing that I've done so far is 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 to scrutinize it intellectually um, and to look at what the science says about what I am experiencing and what other people are experiencing and, the, and get to the bottom of the mechanisms and the uh, how it all works. Is that because you feel a safety in understanding these things as much as possible or because you enjoy being that close to these topics of which you have thought about and have been troubled by? I don't know. I, I actually probably think I need to see a psychiatrist at this point in my life in terms of like the, the topics that I'm attracted to. But I have I have always been, you know, it, it is just one of, one of those other things that has been taboo, dark, um, but really rich fodder for scientific investigation, but also not in a forensic sense. I mean, one of the things that, I, that I've tried to do with my writing, no matter what the subject, no matter how dark and grim, is to not simply write forensic textbooks um, where people are just immediately sort of put off by the dark the subject matter. I, I think there's a place for humor in everything, no matter how sensitive or difficult or challenging the topic. For me, for me humorlessness is the most vile offense um, that could be made by a writer. As you say, uh, you know, humor is important to you, but Humor, humor in the in the face of absurdity, not making fun of people, sure. but just in the situations that were dealt. A lot of your inspiration for your work comes from stuff you think about, as you you say. You're not always thinking about these things, though. What is Jesse Bearing like? What is he doing at home? Is he making a cup of tea for his partner? Is he watching television? Is there a sort of very ordinary but yeah, I need to lighten up already, right? Side to you. <laughs> Oh yeah, totally. That's 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 more of me probably than the the writing persona that I have, or so how, how, I'm, how I'm coming across probably in this interview right now. Actually, we have two dogs. I, I mean, I, I'm completely infatuated with our border terriers. Um, I have a cat named Tommy. My my partner and I have been living in New Zealand for two years. Uh, we we travel quite a bit throughout uh, the South Island, at least. Do a lot of tramping, and uh, we watch way too much. Um, RuPaul's Drag Race. So he's completely obsessed with it. I I, I enjoy it, but I'm dragged out. You're a reluctant RuPaul. I got into it. And we like the Real Housewives. And, you know, I I am into lots of the the stereotypical gay reality TV shows. (laughs) You have chosen to write about many and varied things. What's next, do you think? I have absolutely no idea. One of the things that that I'm grateful for at the moment is that I'm not under tremendous pressure to churn book out after book because um, I now, I'm now back in an academic position. 
I have a, a fairly stable salary. So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have an idea for my next book after suicide, but I'm sure there'll be something just as disturbing after that. And what do you feel is the impact or the objective of what you do? Because it clearly has a profound impact on a lot of people. I guess I strive for honesty. And I think because I was so dishonest in living my life for such a long time, everything I do now is urgently true. I, I want to say things that I felt like I couldn't say for such a long time. Um, I've already said so much about myself and revealed so much about myself through my style of confessional science writing that no matter what I say now, it's, it's, it's nothing terribly shocking. So I, I feel like I'm a phantom now sort of living as a writer and I can say things that many other uh, nonfiction writers at least or science writers would be uncomfortable sharing about themselves. And that is both liberating to me but also the uh, sort of the passion that fuels me. I want to be honest about myself because I think that there are – I don't want to sound uh, narcissistic and even though I probably am slightly unfortunately. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that sounds horrible even just actually saying that out loud. I think there are so many people speaking for the common sense everyday perspective um, that the underdogs and uh, those that are not understood and demonized for uh, reasons that I see as inherently unjust and unfair are not getting that advocacy from uh, the scientific, rational community that they deserve. And I, I guess that's where I see my role. Well, it's been both confessional and enormously interesting. Jesse Bering, thank you very much. Thank you, Hamish. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program headed by Anne Mossop. Our show is hosted by me, Hamish MacDonald, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. We're recorded by Jason Blackwell and Oliver Brighton, mixed by Brendan Zacharias, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey.